Good morning. Happy Sabbath to all of you. It's a pleasure to be in this beautiful facility. I'm very much impressed by your stage or your platform here. The three angels in the center and Revelation 12, 17 on the sides. Absolutely beautiful. You know, I left a lot of money at Andrews University. <laughs> I got three degrees, a BA, MA, and MDiv here many years ago. But in all of those years that I spent here at Andrews, which is probably about five or six total, I only came to the village church once. All of the other times, we attended Pioneer. Pastor Kelly tells me that uh, you went through a major remodel, and it can be seen. It's just absolutely beautiful, a real testimony and an honor and glory for God. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray, and then we'll get into the study of the Word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being in your house on your holy day. And we ask that your Holy Spirit will be present with us to open our understanding, to soften our hearts, and to prepare us for the great events that will soon explode upon the world scene. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of prayer. And we know that you have heard us because we ask it in the precious and holy and powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. The last three days, we have been holding a Daniel 11 symposium here at the Village Church. And we've been studying intensely many of the concepts that we find in this chapter. In the last five verses of Daniel 11, we find a description of the last human power that will persecute God's people at the end. Daniel 11 refers to this power as the king of the north. And according to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, the faithful will go through an unprecedented time of trouble that Matthew 24, 21 describes as the great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. Basically, Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 is a continuation of chapter 11. Ellen White described this ordeal that God's people are going to go through in Great Controversy page 622. It is often the case that trouble is greater in anticipation than in reality. But this is not true of the crisis before us. The most vivid presentation cannot reach the magnitude of the ordeal. In that time of trial, every soul must stand for himself before God. What will God's people be like during this unprecedented time of anguish and trouble? How will they subsist? How will they persevere? What will they be doing? This morning we're going to study a parable that describes what God's people will go through and the faith that they will have to face this time of crisis. We're going to study a parable of Jesus. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, 
and verses 1 through 8. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. You know, it's called the parable of the unjust judge. I prefer to call it the parable of the persistent widow. We're going to read the passage first, and then we're going to uh, review the main elements, and then we're going to look at the main elements more closely. The reason I'm going to read the passage is so that it's fixed in our minds. Luke 18, verse 1. Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, that is to the judge, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he, the judge, would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, And shall God not avenge his own elect, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Now this parable teaches two lessons, and they're found in verse 1. First of all, it teaches us that we're always ought to pray and never give up. Those are the two lessons. Always pray and never give up. Now the parable ap applies to all history, but in a specific way it applies to the time of trouble that God's people will be going through at the end of time. You say, how do we know that? By the context in which it appears. You see, immediately before the parable, if you read the last verses of chapter 17, Jesus has been saying, as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. Then he says, as it was in the days of Lot, so will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. And then you have the parable. And the parable ends with the reference to the second coming. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? So the parable is between two references to the second coming of Christ, and that is the historical context. Now let's take a look, an overview of the persons and the elements that we find in this parable. First of all, we have a judge. Notice Luke 18, verse 2. There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. What does that mean? It means that the judge was a secular man. The judge had no religious inclinations. He simply did his civil duty. Then we'll notice in chapter 18 and verse 3, the first part of the verse, there was a widow in that city. So there's a judge and there's a widow. Now the record seems to indicate that the widow had no children, she had no house, she had no money, she had no friends, no attorney to represent her. The adversary had totally wiped her out, and her only hope resided in the judge doing her justice. And then you have another element in the parable. Not only do you have a judge, not only do you have a widow, but you also have the persistence and perseverance of the widow. We're told in Luke chapter 18 and verse 3, 
Now, there was a widow in that city, uh, and she came to him. Now, that doesn't capture uh, the, the full meaning of her coming to the judge, because she actually came and came and came. Because the judge in verse 5 complains, he says, lest by her continual coming, she wear me out. So in other words, the widow didn't come once or twice or three times. She kept coming and coming and coming and persevering as she uh, appealed to the judge to do her justice. Now in the parable, there's also an adversary of the widow. Notice Luke chapter 18, verse 3, once again. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, and it continues saying, saying, get justice for me from my adversary. Now, those who have studied this parable have reached the conclusion that this woman's husband died, and when he died, he owed a significant sum to a creditor. And so the creditor simply wiped the widow out, took everything that her husband had left her in order for, to pay for the debt that her husband had incurred. And so in this story, you have an adversary who wiped the widow out, so to speak. The next element of the parable is a delay. In chapter 18, verse 4, it says, And he would not for a while. So the judge did not answer the widow's pleas immediately. He capriciously delayed to answer, although she kept coming and coming and coming. Now we also notice that after the delay, the judge did her justice. Because it says once again in chapter 18 and verse 4, And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, Yet because this widow troubles me, in other words, she had become a pest, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. So we have a judge, a widow, the persistence of the widow, the adversary, the delay, and finally after the delay, justice is meted out. What does the parable mean? Now, we basically reviewed the elements of the parable, but what does the parable mean? Well, we don't have to guess. Some parables of Jesus he did not explain, but this parable he explained every detail of it. Notice Luke 18, verse 6. It says, Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. This is a way of Jesus saying, Now I'm going to tell you what the parable means. Verse 7. And shall God, so the judge represents whom? God, not avenge his own elect. Who does the widow represent? The elect who cry out day and night, which means that there must be a delay, right? Who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. Now, who do the personages of this parable represent? This is a sim you know, the parables are symbolic. The parables use symbols, just like the apocalyptic passages of the scriptures. Who does the judge represent? Well, there's no doubt that the judge represents God, because when Jesus explains the parable, he says, shall God not avenge? 
Now immediately people ask, but pastor, how can the judge represent God when it says that the, that the judge did not fear God nor regard man? So how can a judge like that represent God? The answer is that the judge in the parable represents God by way of contrast. It's a comparison by way of contrast. This is the way it works. If a judge who does not fear God nor regard man answers the pleas of a widow to get her off his back, how much more will God answer the pleas of his people because he loved them? In other words, the judge answers and God answers, but they answer for different reasons. Are you with me or not? Now, who does the widow represent? Well, let me ask you this. What does a woman represent symbolically in Scripture? A woman represents the church. A pure woman represents what kind of church? A pure church. A harlot woman represents what kind of a church? A fallen church. What does a widow woman represent? I'll bet you nobody has ever asked you that question. <laughs> what does a widow woman represent? Well, she's lost everything. So this must represent a church that exists not during ordinary circumstances. She represents God's persecuted people at the end of time who have lost all earthly support. A church that is going through a severe time of trouble and crying out to God and the only hope of the faithful remnant is for God to do them justice over the adversary. Now you say, how do we know this? You notice that, that Jesus said, shall God not avenge his own elect? So the widow represents the what? The elect. So the question is, when are the elect going to live? We have to go to Matthew 24. In verse 21, and then we'll read verses 22 and 24. The very word elect is used. It says here in Matthew 24, 21, for then there will be what kind of tribulation? Great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, no ever shall be. Verse 22, and unless those days of the tribulation were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the what? Oh, so when do the elect live? During the great what? During the great tribulation. So it says, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And then in verse 24, it says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. And this is talking about Satan counterfeiting the second coming of Christ. So what does the widow represent? God's elect who are going through the final time of trouble such as has never been seen in the history of the world. The question is, who does the adversary represent that is going to wipe out the church and going to leave the members of the church without anything to lean on except God? The parable does not identify the, the adversary, but when we go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we discover who the adversary of the widow is, who the adversary of the church is that is going to wipe out the church. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, a very well-known verse, says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, that's the same Greek word, antidikon, 
because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And by the way, in Revelation chapter 12, it's the dragon that is persecuting the woman. So the adversary is the devil. Now in the parable, the widow cried out day and night for the judge to deliver her from her adversary. Likewise, during the severe time of trouble, which I believe is not very far away, God's faithful people will cry out day and night to God for deliverance from the adversary, from Satan. Now the expression cry out is one Greek word. And it's very intense in Greek. There are many words in the New Testament that speak about crying out. But this is a very intense one. For example, Acts chapter 8 and verse 7 uh, tells us that uh, when the evil spirits saw the apostles, they would scream, they would cry out. Luke 9 verse 38 speaks about a son crying out to Jesus for Jesus to heal his demon-possessed son. Mark 15, 34, Jesus cries out to his father, Why have you forsaken me? And in Galatians 4, 27, the word cry out is used for birth pangs. So it's going to be a very, very intense crying out, a period of pain. And God is not going to answer immediately. There's going to be a delay. You'll notice that in the parable, uh, it says that they cry out day and night and that God is going to bear what? Long with them. Albert Barnes, the great Presbyterian Bible commentator, wrote the following words. Although he defers long to avenge them and greatly tries their patience, yet he will avenge them. He tries their faith he suffers their persecutions and trials to continue a long time. And it almost appears as if he would not interpose, yet he will do it, and he will save them. We live in a society that desires immediate gratification. I want it, and I want it now. God's people cannot have that kind of attitude. You know, when God answers prayer, he can answer in three ways. He can answer yes, he can answer no, and he can answer wait. And wait is what we don't like because we want what we want immediately. Now here's the question. If God loves his people so much, why would he allow them to fully experience the time of trouble and the delay and why would he wait so long to deliver them? Why not deliver them at the very moment that the time of trouble begins? God will allow his people to go through the time of trouble for two reasons. The first reason is that God wants to teach his people to depend wholly and completely on him and nothing on self, nothing on our stuff. The trials will cement the faith of God's people for eternity. The time of trouble will cleanse them from everything that attaches them to this earth. Ellen White says that all earthliness must be consumed. Notice he doesn't say all worldliness. Earthliness, that which attaches us to this earth, all our stuff, our house, our car, our 401ks, our money, our freedom. 
So the first reason is for God's people to be totally disconnected from planet Earth. God's elect will face all the forces of the enemy and their faith will grow with each trial. The furnace of affliction will purify them and they will come forth as pure gold with no dross. Job, when he went through his experience in Job 23 verse 10 said, Behold, I have refined you. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. In Isaiah 48 and verse 10, God says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. The experience of the three young men in the fiery furnace illustrates in a small way, in a typological way, the reason why God allows his people to go through the final time of trouble. In fact, Ellen White uses the experience of Daniel 3 about the furnace of fire to refer to the final generation. In Great Controversy, page 621, Ellen White wrote about those who go through this time, the, their affliction is great. The flames of the furnace seem about to consume them, but the refiner will bring them forth as gold tried in the fire. God's love for his children during the period of their severest trial is as strong and tender as in the days of their sunniest prosperity, but it is needful for them to be placed in the furnace of fire. Their earthliness must be consumed that the image of Christ may be perfectly reflected. She also wrote in the devotional book, Our Father Cares, the following words. Those who hold fast their faith unto the end will come forth from the furnace of trial as fine gold seven times purified. Of this work, the prophet Isaiah says, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the gold wedge of Ophir. When in trouble, remember that faith tried in the furnace of affliction is more precious than gold tried with fire. Remember that there is one watching every movement to see when the last particle of dross is taken away from your character. Beautiful statement, isn't it? What is the second reason for the delay? The second reason for the delay is found, the explanation is found, in the story that we find in the book of Job. Job has all of the elements of this parable without missing one. It's, Job is a living illustration of the parable of Jesus. In the book of Job, you remember in the story, uh, the sons of God come into the presence of God. Among them comes Satan representing planet Earth. And uh, God, uh, you know, first of all, you find the description of the character of Job. And then God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? He lives in your territory, but he's my servant. And what does Satan say? By the way, the heavenly jury is watching. The entire heavenly universe is watching. All the sons of God are there. The heavenly council is there. And Satan says to God, of course he serves you. For the loaves and fishes. You put a wedge around him. You don't let me touch him. But if you allowed me to torment him, he would blaspheme you to your face. 
the heavenly jury's listening. Now, God could have said, I don't pay any attention to him. He's lying. But God says, I'm going to, I'm going to reveal something to the entire universe. And so he says to Satan, the adversary, I allow you to go and do anything you want, but don't touch him. So Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord. He comes to the earth. The heavenly jury is watching. And you know the story. Satan wipes Job out. All of his servants, all of his possessions, kills his children. He's left with nothing. And so now you have a second heavenly council. The heavenly jury is there. The heavenly council is there. They're observing what's happening. And God says to Satan, Have you seen my servant Job? That in spite of the fact that you incited me against him, he still has his integrity. By the way, after the first trial, Job said, God gave and God has taken away. He didn't have all the light. He didn't have the Bible like us. That, that's, that's only half true. God gave, but God didn't take away. Praise be the name of the Lord. And so the heavenly jury said, God was right. Job doesn't serve God for the loaves and the fishes. Job serves God simply because he loves him. So Satan says, of course he didn't apostatize. Because you didn't let me touch him. And God says, oh really? The heavenly council is watching. So God says, okay. You can go and you do anything you want with him, only I won't let you take his life. Because if he takes his life, the trial's over. So Satan goes out and from the, from the laboratory of diseases, he brings the, forth the worst disease. And the Bible says that he afflicted Job with boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And he had to scratch himself with a potsherd. And the whole heavenly universe is watching to see how Job is going to react. And Job keeps his integrity. But he hasn't lost everything yet. He's lost his servants. He's lost uh, his children. He's lost his possessions. He's lost basically everything. He's lost his health. And now he loses the support of his wife. She says, do you still keep your integrity? Curse God and die. He's lost the support of his wife. And then his three closest friends come to comfort him. And they become his accusers. He's lost everything. And now from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 38, he cries out to God and there's no answer. In fact, let me just read a passage here from Job 23 verses 1 through 7. Then Job replied, even today my complaint is bitter. His, that is God's hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him, if I knew where to find God. If only I could go to his dwelling. This is a, the book of Job is actually a court scene. And God is the judge. There's a lot of legal language in the book. It says in verse um, 4 once again, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. Would he oppose me with great power? No, he would not press charges against me. Therefore, an upright man could present his case before him and I would be delivered forever from my what? From my judge. 
And even though Job can't feel God, he feels like God has forsaken him. He never gives up his faith. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I know that my Redeemer lives. When he has tested me, I will come forth as pure gold. So to chapter 38, he's crying out. There's a long delay. There's no answer. But then you know the ending of the book. God intervenes and delivers Job from his adversary. Is this story an illustration of the parable? It most certainly is. This is Job's time of trouble. Now, the experience of Jesus is an illustration of the parable as well. Who is the judge in the case of Christ? The Father is the judge. Who would the widow represent, the faithful remnant? Jesus. Who would the adversary be? Satan. Did Satan take everything that Jesus had? Listen, folks, he didn't, have, he didn't even have his clothes when he hung on the cross. He had absolutely nothing, no place to lay his head. So let me ask you, did Jesus cry out in anguish to his father? Of course he did. In Gethsemane, three times he said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it be so. Nevertheless, not my will, be, but your will be done. And he sweated great drops of blood as he was crying out to his father. In fact, we're told in Matthew 26, verse 37, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Did Jesus even feel like the judge the father had forsaken him? He cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus lived his parable. By the way, was there a delay in the father answering the plea of Jesus in Gethsemane? Did the Father give him immediate gratification? No. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. We usually don't go to this verse that describes the agony of Jesus in Gethsemane. We usually read from the Gospels. But this verse is describing his agony in Gethsemane. It says there in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, Who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications. What is Jesus doing? He's offering up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Did the Father deliver him from dying? Did the Father delay in answering the plea of Jesus, the cry of Jesus? Yes, because Jesus died. And yet the text tells us here that he cried out to the one who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. When did the Father mete out justice upon Christ? On resurrection morning. But there was the delay of Gethsemane and the cross and dying. Well, let me uh, ask you this question. Why did the Father allow Jesus to go through this? Notice Hebrews 5 verse 8. Though he was a son. By the way, uh, it does not really say in Greek, though he was a son. It says, though he was son. Not a son. Son. The son. 
Listen to this now. He learned obedience by the things which he suffered. It doesn't mean that he was disobedient and he learned to be obedient. No. At every step he was what? Obedient in his trials. Is that going to happen to God's people during the final time of trouble? Absolutely. Now let me talk for a moment about uh, the final meeting out of justice upon Jesus by his Father. Ellen White has this interesting quotation. Youth's instructor, May 2, 1901. He who died for the sins of the world was to remain in the tomb for the allotted time. Listen carefully now. He was in that stony prison house as a prisoner of divine justice. And he was responsible to the judge of the universe. Who was that? The Father. He was bearing the sins of the world, listen carefully now, and his Father only could release him. Who's the only one who could release Jesus from the tomb? The Father. By the way, that's the reason why Jesus, uh, the last thing he said on the cross was, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And on resurrection morning, Ellen White describes how two angels descended from heaven. One took away the stone, sat on it, and the other one stood before the tomb and said, O thou Son of God, thy Father calls thee. He had to be called out of the grave. And I know many probably are, are thinking, yeah, but didn't Jesus resurrect by the life that was within himself? Yes. Let's go to John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. John chapter 10 verses 17 and 18, where we find the key as to who resurrected Christ. These verses are really important. Sometimes we forget at the last part of verse 18. Jesus says here, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life. Who laid down the life? He did. That I may take it again. Who takes it again? He does. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. And now there's a translation that is not the best translation. The new, I'm reading from the New King James. I have power to lay it down. The, the word power uh, in Greek is dunamis. But this is not the word here. This word is exousia, which should be translated authority. So Jesus says, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it again. Ah, but now notice the last part of the verse. This command I have received from my Father. So what happens? The father sends the angel. The angel says, O thou son of God, thy father calls thee. And then Jesus came forth from the tomb with the life that was within himself. But he had to be called from the tomb by his father. Now I want to read, in closing, a chilling statement from Review and Herald, April 14, 1896. Do you know the scenes of Christ's passion and crucifixion are going to be relived by his people? Listen to this statement. The forces of darkness will unite with human agents. Who are the forces of darkness? Satan and his angels. The forces of darkness will unite with human agents who have given themselves into the control of Satan. And now listen. And the same scenes that were exhibited at the trial, rejection, and crucifixion of Christ will be revived. 
Wow. Through, now listen. Through yielding to satanic influences, men will be transformed into fiends. Do you know what a fiend is? A demon. Men will be transformed into fiends. And those who were created in the image of God, who were formed to honor and glorify their creator, will become the habitation of dragons. And Satan will see in an apostate race his masterpiece of evil, men who reflect his own image. Review and Herald, April 14, 1896. We have no conception, folks, of what this world is going to be like after God withdraws His Spirit from the world. We think that things are bad now. We have no idea. Ellen White says that when probation closes, Satan will have full control of the finally impenitent. Imagine a world where Satan is in total and complete control of the wicked. It's going to be a great trial. Why was Jesus successful? You know, today we depend too much on feelings. If Jesus had depended on his feelings when he was in Gethsemane on the cross, he would have failed. I end with this statement from Ellen White. It's found in Desire of Ages 756. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, listen, listen carefully, in those dreadful hours he had relied upon the evidence of his father's acceptance heretofore given him. In other words, given to him up to this point. He was acquainted with the character of his father. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love. By faith he rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey, and in submission he committed himself to God. And as in submission he committed himself to God, the sense of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn by faith. Christ was the victor. Did you notice that the parable ends with a question, an unanswered question? We're left wondering, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith in the earth? Jesus didn't answer, but the Bible does. Final text. Here is the patience of the saints. By the way, that word patience is, there's two words translated patience in the New Testament. Makrothumia, which means long-suffering. But that's not the word here. The word here is hupomone, which means perseverance. It's used in Matthew 24. He who endures till the end will be saved. So it says here is the endurance of the saints. Those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I believe that we are living in the last remnant of time. We need to put our priorities in order, don't we? None of the stuff that we have is going to survive. Now is the time to invest in the cause of God everything that we don't need to get from point A to point B. And we need to learn to pray. Because it's during probationary time that we prepare for the trial that is coming ahead. And I pray that the Lord will impress us as we've studied this to refurbish our prayer life.
to get into the study of the Word and strengthen our minds with the Word of God. Now we're going to sing our closing hymn, A Shelter in the Time of Storm. So let's sing it with the utmost enthusiasm, and then we'll have our benediction. Stand together with me while we sing number Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It comforts us. It helps us see what's ahead so that we can prepare a character that will withstand the great trials ahead. We truly want you to be our shelter 
in the storm that soon approaches. Lord, I ask that as we've studied your word today that you will write it in our minds and in our hearts, that we might not go home and be the same as we've always been, but that we will develop this intimate, personal relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for having been with us and for answering our prayer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.